This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Esther. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Esther chapter 3. And as you make your way to the third chapter of Esther, I just want to take a moment to remind you that it was in our study last week. That's when we learned about the day when the king of Persia, he aired the very first season of The Bachelor, you know, after banishing his wife to the quarters of the concubines, King Ahasuerus, he called for the most beautiful virgins in all the land to be brought before him. And after spending one night with each of them, then he chose a young lady to give the rose to, so to speak. You know, he chose a young lady named Esther to become his new queen. And uh, what he didn't know was that Esther was the daughter of a Jewish couple who had been brought to Babylon during the days of their captivity. And seeing how there was already a rise in anti-Semitism happening there in Persia, well, uh, uh, Esther, you know, she, somewhere along the way, her, her parents uh, perished or passed away, uh, and her, uh, uh, she was adopted uh, by a relative named Mordecai, and, and he encouraged her to keep her Jewish lineage a secret probably because of the anti-Semitism that was rising up in those days. It was in our study last week when I pointed out that anti-Semitism is the prejudice that some people have against Jewish people. And it's sad to say that this is a prejudice that oftentimes results in hostility and even at times violence. And I'm sure we all recognize that uh, there have been uh, many anti-Semites who have made history throughout the ages uh, for example, I mean, you know, the first person that always comes to mind is Hitler. You know, Hitler, he, he didn't, I don't, I don't think he started out as an anti-Semite, but along the way he became an anti-Semite who sought to exterminate all of the Jews there in Europe with what he called the final solution. What you might not know is that, you know, this wasn't the first time that the Jews faced the threat of genocide. As a matter of fact, it was back in the early 2nd century when a Roman emperor named Hadrian, he murdered hundreds of thousands of Jews as he attempted to exterminate the chosen people of God. And let's not forget that it was in the 7th century when a man named Muhammad, he informed his followers that his God was giving him the, the lands, the, the, the land of promise, the, the, their homes and, and the possessions of their enemies. And in this, he was referring to the Jews. It's actually in the Quran, chapter 33, where Muhammad declares this. He tells us that Allah brought down from their strongholds those of the people of the book. That's a reference to the Jews. He, he brought down from their strongholds those of the people of the book who backed them, and he threw terror into their hearts. Some of them you killed, and others you took captive, and he made you inherit their land and their homes and their possessions and a region you have never stepped on. Uh, in other words, Muhammad was a, a man who was encouraging the Muslims uh, to go and kill and conquer the Jews. Furthermore, it's in one of the uh, hadiths uh, where Muhammad once assured the adherents of Islam uh, that the day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight the Jews when the Jew will hide behind stones and trees. The stones and trees will say, O Muslims, O Abdullah, there is a Jew behind me, come and kill him. Now, in light of this statement, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that the Muslims who actually embrace the, these teachings, well, they're also committed to the complete genocide of the Jews. And it's for this reason that we find many Muslims in the world today who are still trying to wipe Israel from the face of the map. At the same time, we also see an increasing level of anti-Semitism happening here in America. 
And this includes an increasing number of bomb threats against synagogues and Jewish community centers. And not only that, but there's also been an increasing number of physical attacks against members of our American Jewish community. And I have no doubt that these attacks will continue to increase the closer we get to the end of this age. Now, before I get too far ahead of myself, I want to consider another example of anti-Semitic hatred, which we find here in our text tonight. With this as the focus, if you would look with me here at Esther chapter 3, we'll begin reading at verse 1, because here we read, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. Now here in the first verse of this chapter, we're introduced to this man named Haman, and not to be confused with He-Man. That's, He-Man's the master of the universe. Uh, This guy, well, wasn't. My guess is that his dad was just wanting to pick a name that he wouldn't forget, so he just named his son, hey man, you know, it's it's easy to remember that, right? But it's there in the middle of verse 1 where we learn that Haman's father was an Agagite, not to be confused with an Agi. That's uh, that's something, something different altogether as well. Now, this guy, he was a descendant of Agag. That's why he's uh, known as an Agagite. And so he's a descendant of Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. And it's important to note here that the Amalekites, they were the descendants of Isaac's firstborn son, Esau. And with that being the case, we should take a moment to consider the day when Esau traded the blessings of his birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of red stew. You can read the full account in Genesis chapter 25, but it's in Hebrews chapter 11 where Paul sums it all up when he refers to Esau as a profane person who sold his birthright for one morsel of food. It was at that point in time when the inheritance that belonged to Esau, according to the law, was then translated to his brother Jacob, according to the election of God. And as a result, Jacob became the founding father of Israel according to the, the, the election of the Lord. And with that being the case, well, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that the descendants of Esau, they actually went on to become the sworn enemies of Israel. This, of course, includes the Amalekites who were constantly attacking the Israelites. Now, in the light of this historical context, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that Haman, the Amalekite, was determined to exterminate the Israelites. And that's precisely what he tried to do after receiving his promotion there in Persia. Now, in order to prove my point, let's pick up our study of Esther chapter 3. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 2, here we learn that all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay uh, pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Now here in these verses, we learn about this day when the king of Persia commanded everyone to pay homage to Haman by bowing themselves before him. And that word homage, which is found there in verse 2, 
was translated from a Hebrew word, which was used of those who would bow down before someone that they recognized as their superior, seeing how this position of prostration could be perceived as an act of worship. Mordecai refused to bow. He took a stand against this executive order by refusing to bow down before Haman. And then after discovering that Mordecai was a Jew, well, that's when Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were living there in the Persian Empire. Now, that word destroy, which is found there in verse 6, it's translated from a Hebrew word, which could also be rendered devastate, exterminate, and annihilate. It's for this reason that the scholars who created the New American Standard Bible, the 2020 version, they render verse 6 in this way. Haman sought to annihilate all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were found throughout the kingdom of Ahasuerus. That's right. Haman not only wanted to kill Mordecai, you know, for, for dissing him, but he also wanted to completely annihilate, exterminate, and devastate the Jews living in the Persian Empire. And with this as his goal, you know, he began to use the political system of Persia to accomplish his evil agenda. And with this as the focus, let's turn our attention back to the account that we find here in Esther chapter 3. If you would look with me there at verse 7, here we learn that it was in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast per, that is, the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Now here in this verse, we learn about this day there in the the first month of the new year when the Persian officials were consulting their astrologers and and this they did through the traditional practice known as purr. And it's there in the middle of verse 7 where we learn that the purr, it's sort of like the lots that the Jews would cast whenever they were seeking to know the leading of the Lord. And so it was like a, a flip of a coin or a toss of the dice or a drawing of a straw, that sort of thing. And it was during this New Year event when the purr pointed to Haman. And it was at that point in time when this man who hated the Jews, he ended up becoming the chancellor of Persia. Or you might just say that he was head of the IRS. You know, he, he became this high-ranking official who was ready to start collecting taxes for the king. And not only that, but the purr also pointed to the day and the month when Haman should begin to accomplish the evil scheme that was in his heart. And after receiving this green light from this uh, astrological purr and this casting of a lot, and Haman then decided that it was time to present his plan to the king. I want to take a moment to consider how he presented this plan. So if you would look with me there, beginning at verse 8. Here we learn that Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed." And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. Now here in these verses we find Haman, he's immediately beginning to abuse his position of power, you know, like a politician. And, and he did this by warning the king about this troublesome group of people who refused to abide by the laws of Persia. They had some other set of rules. You know, this set of rules that, that are so bad and wicked, you know, like, like don't kill people and don't commit adultery and don't covet and, you know, you know really bad rules. You know, you gotta, we got to really deal with these troublemakers. He assured the king that it would be unprofitable for him to let them live. 
At the same time, Haman also assured the king that this campaign wouldn't cost him anything. And to the contrary, because you know, the, confisca- the confiscated properties of those peoples would ultimately end up in the king's treasury. And so, you know, here we find the chancellor of Persia effectively, uh, you know, assuring the king of Persia that the extermination of the Jews would not only rid the kingdom of these deplorables, but it would simultaneously secure more wealth for this government. It's a win-win situation, according to Haman. Well, it was at that point in time when King Ahasuerus approved this use of force as he handed Haman his royal ring. As a matter of fact, look with me there, beginning at verse 10. Here we learn that the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, And the decree was written according to all that Haman commanded. To the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all the people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Azurus, it is written and sealed with the king's signet ring. Now here in these verses we find the king, he's empowering Haman by handing him his royal ring. And just to be clear, this, this ring probably included the king's seal or signet and, and quite possibly like a little stone that kind of changed colors when your moods changed, but we can't say for certain. We don't know. Maybe. But it definitely had a seal that, that would be like the signature. It's a signet ring, and so it would have the, the, the basic signature of the king. Therefore, those who were in possession of this royal ring were effectively bestowed with proxy power and the authoritative agency of the king. Can you imagine receiving a royal ring like this? Can you imagine you know, receiving some sort of royal ring that imparted the power of a king to you? That would be incredible. And if, and if you think that, that would be pretty awesome, you know, I encourage you to realize that those who, who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've received a royal ring. And this royal ring has imparted to us the power of the king of kings. This was precisely the point that Paul was making in Ephesians chapter 1. There he declares in him, speaking of Jesus, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And you might be wondering, you know, where, where did Paul mention a royal ring here? Well, if so, then you might like to know that the word sealed, which is found there in verse 13, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of the mark created by a signet ring. So, so there's a mark created by the signet ring of our king that's been placed on those who believe in Jesus Christ. And, and seeing how, you know, uh, the, the, uh, with, you know, seeing how we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise here, well, then it's important to understand that the Holy Spirit is the one making the mark. The Holy Spirit is the one making, making the mark, so therefore the Holy Spirit is the signet ring who has sealed us with the mark of our king. At the same time, when, when we trust in Jesus Christ, we not only receive this sealing, this mark of our king's signet ring, but we've also received the Holy Spirit himself, 
We've received the Holy Spirit, who is the signet ring, and he becomes the guarantee of our inheritance. And so it's in a sort of supernatural way that we've received the signet ring of our king. And what this means then is that we've also received the proxy power and the authoritative agency of the king of kings. This is why we're encouraged to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to achieve everything that the Lord has sent us to accomplish. It's for this reason that the Lord Jesus encouraged his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. This was the, the last advice that, that he gave to them. This was the last you know, bit of instruction that he gave them before ascending into heaven. He said, hey, wait in Jerusalem for just a few days until the Holy Spirit is poured out. And it's in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he declares, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In other words, the Holy Spirit is not only a seal, he not only, he not only provides us with this seal as he, as he seals us into the mystical body of Christ, but the Holy Spirit then begins to act like a living signet ring by providing us with the proxy power and the authoritative agency of our King Jesus. With that being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that we can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. Or let me put it this way, we can do all the things that Christ Jesus is calling us to do because with the signet ring of the Holy Spirit, we have the power and the authority of Jesus Christ to do those things that he's calling us to do. Pretty incredible. At the same time, we can also rejoice in knowing that the believer who grieves the Holy Spirit of God, they will quickly find themselves walking in the limited strength of their own finite flesh. So if you think that you can take the signet ring of our king and just use it any old way, <laughs> you, you can't. The Holy Spirit won't allow that. And there's a lot of Christians who, who are struggling in life and they're, they don't have the strength to, to make it another day. Why? Because they're walking in the flesh. They're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. But those who walk in the power of the Holy Spirit will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Listen, those of us who are trying to convince our king that he should help us accomplish our own sinful agenda, you're wasting your time and you're wasting your energy. The Lord isn't interested in helping us accomplish our agenda. He's given us his signet ring to give us the power we need so that we can accomplish his agenda, so that we can be part of his perfect plan. Trust me when I tell you that, that the Lord Jesus, our King of Kings, isn't as easily manipulated like King Ahasuerus. Was King Ahasuerus being manipulated by Haman? Well, of course. And he didn't have the sense to understand that. But the king of kings can easily see past the facade of our fleshly schemes. And while the world is filled with leaders like King Ahasuerus, who are easily duped by the Hamans of this world, well, we can rejoice in knowing that the king of heaven and earth is still able to work all things together according to his will, even when the Hamans of this world are trying to run everything off the rails. To prove my point, let's continue to consider the way that Haman set out to accomplish his agenda there in Persia. If you will, let's turn our attention back to Esther chapter 3. 
I want you to look with me here beginning at verse 13, because here we learn that the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all the people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. You think? <laughs> I mean, this, this decree just went out saying, hey, let's kill all the Jews. Yeah, they were perplexed. They were confused. They were wondering, what's going on here? But as we consider the king's decree, we must not fail to notice that this all-encompassing uh, law it was completely unjust. You know, the, Haman's complaining about you know, the laws of, of the Jews, and yet here's this law that is completely, entirely unjust. And yet it, it was this all-encompassing law. First of all, listen, the people of Persia were instructed to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the Jews. That word destroy, well, it's translated from the same Hebrew word that we considered back in verse 6. I'll remind you that this word can also be rendered devastate, exterminate and annihilate. But just in case the people didn't understand what the king was saying with the, with the word, you know, annihilate or destroy, he then goes on to include another word, which is the word kill. That word kill is found there in, the, in verse 13. Well, it's translated from a Hebrew word, which was used of the murderers and the slayers who strike with deadly intent. And so the king was commanding his people to devastate, to exterminate, to annihilate, and to murder, to slay every Jew with their hands. But just in case they still didn't understand what he was getting at here, the king then includes a third Hebrew word, which here is rendered annihilate. The same Hebrew word was used of those who have perished to the point of vanishing. And in this way, the king was commanding the people of Persia to simply make the Jews disappear. He wants them to just be vanished. He's calling them to commit genocide. Then, in order to be even more perfectly clear, we should also notice there in the middle of verse 13, there the king commanded his people to apply this to every single Jew in Persia, which includes both, notice, young and old, little children and women. Clearly, this is just a complete call, a command to commit genocide. The king also ordered them to accomplish this command on the 13th day of the 12th month. Now remember, this was the date that had been chosen during the New Year festivity when the leaders were consulting their astrologers and, and, and as they were casting the lot or that when they were engaging in the, the purr for Haman. This was the date that came up. I guess we could say this, that the purr turned into the purge. And this happened as the Persians were commanded to commit genocide on the 13th day of Adar. Now, as we consider the clarity of this command, there was still one thing that the king was failing to realize here. That's right, King Ahasuerus was failing to realize that he had just signed the execution order of his new queen, Esther. He had just signed the execution order for his wife. Remember, Esther was a Jewess. 
and seeing how he had ordered the execution of every Jew in the land, well, he was effectively sealing the fate of his queen. Now, this might seem like a hopeless situation, and yet what we're going to discover as we continue to make our way through this book is that the Lord was working all these things together for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. Was he allowing Haman to have free will? Yep. Was he allowing King Azurus to make bad decisions and be manipulated? Yep. And yet, is, is this going to keep God from accomplishing his perfect plan? Absolutely not. I want to take a moment to remind you that the Lord is the one who raises up rulers, and he's the one who brings them down. This was precisely the point that the prophet Daniel was making in Daniel chapter 2, where he declares, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. Our God is the God who raises up kings. And he's the one who removes them when it's time to remove them. Paul confirmed this fact in Romans chapter 13. It's there where he declares there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now think about that for a moment. You know, if it's true that every authority is appointed by God, then it's also true that the Lord is the one who appointed King Ahasuerus and, and Haman. With that being the case, we should take a moment to ask, well, why in the world would God appoint a leader like Haman who was clearly the enemy of Israel? Why would God do such a thing? Why would the Lord allow King Ahasuerus to be duped by a wicked man like Haman? Why would God allow Esther to be chosen out, taken to the, to the, the, the king's you know, house and, and, and then you know, the, become the queen of Persia at this specific point in time when her husband's about to sign an executive order that all the Jews you know, in, the, in the land should die? Why? Why? Without debate, these are all perplexing things to consider, and you know this can perplex us as much as the, the people there in Persia were perplexed when they received this command from the king. And yet we can be certain that the Lord has a plan for all of the dire situations that he allows to happen here in this world. As we continue to make our way through this incredible book, we'll see how the Lord worked all of these things together for the good of his chosen people. Spoiler alert, Haman doesn't have his way. But didn't we already know that? Listen, God provides every person with the individual liberty of human agency. And yet at the same time, he's still able to use imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will. And that's despite us or because we're part of the plan, because we're going along with, with his program. Yeah, the God, you know, the God we worship, the true and living God. He can use the people who want to obey him and he can use the people that are trying to disobey him. Because he's God. And 
And while God is the one who chose the Jews as his special chosen people, the apple of his eye, God can still use anti-Semites like Haman and Hadrian and, yeah, even Hitler. Now, please don't misunderstand my point because I'm not suggesting that these guys were obeying the will of God. No, they were, they were sinners. They were disobeying. These guys were horrible men who hated the people of God. And yet God still used their anti-Semitic sins to accomplish his perfect plan. Think about it. It was God's will to bring his chosen people back to the land of promise. How do I know that? Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel chapter 37 tells us that the dry bones will live again. And in that, the Lord was telling us that, you know, after the dispersion, and after Israel was all but dead, just dry bones in the land, that they would live again. That the knee bone connected to the wrist bone, I don't know how it all works. But a bunch of bones come back together, flesh is back on the the skeleton, and, and it's living again, right? So that was God's plan. And yet, how do you convince the Israelites scattered abroad to go back to the land and start over again? How, how, does, how does God allow them to have free will to choose while also convincing them it's time to return? He's got his ways. And sometimes that way includes allowing someone like a Hitler to rise up and allows Hitler to accomplish his evil desires. And yeah, that was one of the the huge determining factors that that brought more and more Jews back into the land of promise. And and, and now, what do we see? We see the fig tree bearing fruit in abundance. Yeah, God used Hitler to stir the hearts of his people so that a remnant might return and be ready for the rise of the Antichrist. And then the Antichrist is going to do it all over again. Satan's got one play. He raises up the Neros and the Hadrians and the Hitlers and and, and eventually the Antichrist. And they all have a hatred for the chosen people of God because ultimately they hate God. And there's coming a day when the Antichrist will rise up and attack the people of God all over again. And there's like Christians that think they can stop this. It's like, really? God's the one who's going to allow it. And from that, he's going to bring about the perfect end, which is what? The second coming of Christ Jesus, followed by the millennial kingdom. Praise the Lord for that. I don't want to stop the Antichrist from rising up. I want to hasten that day because as soon as the Antichrist raises up, then, you know, seven years and then we got the second coming of Christ. Let's get this party started. I'm tired of this world. But as we go back to Hitler, then, I mean, this is just one example of the times when the Lord worked all things together uh, according to his perfect plan for the good of those who love him. And with that being the case, we should take a moment to ask who are the Hamans that the Lord is currently using in this world? Who are the Hamans that are currently impacting our own lives? You know, we can think about the Hamans on the, on the larger scale of America or the world stage. Uh, we can also think about the Hamans that are wrecking our life today. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe, you know, maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a spouse. Who are the evildoers who are attempting to destroy your life today? 
And I have no doubt that your mind is probably racing to identify those individuals, and it probably didn't take long. Chances are you spent a whole lot of time grieving about what this person is doing. And if so, I encourage you to consider how the Lord might be using them to get you back in line with his perfect will. Christian, listen, if we spend all of our time complaining about the Hamans of this world, we might be missing the lessons that the Lord actually is trying to use to help us. For this reason that James encourages us, in James chapter 1, he says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Your faith has to be put to the test, Christian, in order for us to be perfected. And oftentimes what that means is that the Lord is going to allow the Hamans of this world to put our faith to the test. And if you're spending all your time complaining about the Haman, then you're failing to recognize what God is actually doing in the testing of your faith. Get your eyes off of Haman. And start asking the Lord, Lord, what are you trying to do in my life through that person? As we learn to count every trial as joy, I also encourage you to identify the Mordecais in your life. We need those Mordecais in our lives, you know, because they help us to learn how to stand for truth. You know, the rest of the people, they were bowing down before Haman. Here's this evil individual, and the king says, bow down before Haman, and everybody bows down, and Mordecai's the only one standing. Why? He was a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> Christian, listen, there's a way that seems right to us. There's a way that seems right to the masses, and the masses will be, oh yeah, this is the right way, let's all go this way. And yet that's typically the broad road that leads to destruction. And it's sad to say that the world is filled with those who will simply obey the executive orders of King Ahasuerus, who's currently being duped by Haman. And with that being the case, we need to stop following those who blindly obey the orders of every leader. And instead, we need to surround ourselves with the Mordecais who refuse to bow a knee blindly to the Hamans of this world because they want to know what is God's will in all of this. <clears throat> Christian, listen, we can be certain that the Lord is going to work all things together according to his perfect will. And while it's true that the blind masses will travel the broad road that leads to destruction, it's also true that those who are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit will begin to discover that we are already more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loves us. Therefore, we don't have to worry about the Hamans. In a world filled with Hamans that are out to get us, aren't we still more than conquerors in Christ Jesus? And can they take that away from a Christian? Absolutely not. Therefore, we can rejoice in knowing that there is no Haman that can rob us of our Savior's victory.
because we are already more than conquerors. I like the way that Paul put it in Romans chapter 8. There he declares, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not one created thing in this world can separate us from Christ Jesus our Lord. And with that, we can rejoice in knowing that today, Christian, we're already more than conquerors. We're already victorious in Christ Jesus. And so let's just walk in the power of the Holy Spirit as we walk the narrow path by faith with Jesus Christ. Let's pray.